Well, let's read together from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, and we're beginning at verse 14. Mark 6, verse 14. And King Herod heard of him, Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elijah, Elias. And others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief uh, chief estates of Galilee. When the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it to thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straight away with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Unusually, for Mark, the spotlight is taken off Jesus Christ for a bit while he describes the demise of John the Baptist. This King Herod was the son of Herod the Great, infamous for his slaughter of the innocents, you will remember. And the son, Herod, although he's called a king, technically wasn't and made great efforts to have the Romans give him that title. 
He's heard of some of the amazing things Jesus of Nazareth has been doing. Among the people, there were different ideas about who Jesus was. Some thought Elijah had returned. Others thought he was merely the latest and a long line of prophets. But Herod's superstition was such that he believed Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. The author, Mark, uses this mention of John to digress into this account of what happened to the Baptist. One of John's sayings has kept coming back to me. You remember he said that he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus must increase and to that end John knew he must decrease. And I'm going to use that saying to structure my message today. We'll firstly look at the decrease of John. And I, and I intend to do that by making some observations concerning the three main players in this drama. Herod, Herodias, his wife, and the daughter of Herodias. Herod had mixed feelings towards John. It's not uncommon for people to have these confused feelings towards others. When I started a new job many years ago, a colleague was telling me about what the boss was like. She said, he'd either hate you but respect you, or he'd like you but not respect you. So, if you stood your ground and stuck to your principles, he'd dislike you but have a grudging respect. But if you were a chauvinist, a yes man, you could be his friend, but he'd have zero respect for you. Herod was like this. Part of him wanted John dead. Yet, consider some of the other signs of Herod's attitude to John that we see in the scriptures. He held John to be an important figure, a man truly of God. After all, he believed he was risen from the dead. And what can raise a man from the grave but the power of God? When he heard of mighty works done by this man Jesus, he assumed it must be John. That is, he believed John was so special that he would be able to do these mighty works. He felt bad about the death of John. Not only did he understand a terrible crime had taken place, but he lost someone who was valuable to him. He knew there was, at least in John, one person in his life who'd tell him the truth, even if that truth was painful and offensive. He also took full responsibility for John's death. He thought of John as a just and holy man. In law, this is described as the evidence of a hostile witness. That is, praise coming from your enemy is worth more than character references from a hundred friends. Herod knew John to be a holy man of God, and it was for this reason he feared him. 
Herod watched out for John. He protected him from the bloodlust of his wife who wanted him dead. He was a keen listener to John's sermons about the kingdom of God. If John was a long time in prison, it's likely Herod, Herod would have called for him from time to time to listen to him speak about the things of God. But what did he do with this man who he respected so much? He killed him. You see, he made a rash promise. And he wouldn't be the first in scripture to do this and later regret it. Given the moral state of the company that he kept, it's widely believed Herod and his guests were watching a sexually provocative dance. And we shouldn't forget that this was his stepdaughter. Even if it were a more modest type of dance, which is unlikely, it would hardly be appropriate to have your teenage daughter parade herself in front of a gang of drunken men. When we consider the dilemma Herod faced, we shouldn't forget he could have got out of it when asked for the beheading of John. He could have clarified his offer. He could have said, no, no, I mean a proper gift, money or property, etc. He could have argued her request that he does something immoral. It hardly constitutes a gift. But never mind what the right thing to do was. Never mind that to kill John was to be thoroughly unjust. He wanted to look good in front of his mates. His reputation was more important than the life of a good man. What of Herodias then? She left her husband Philip and got married to this Herod Antipas. The dancing girl was her daughter to a previous husband. The family of Herod was in a mess and it shows again there's nothing new under the sun. We wouldn't have to travel far from the door of this church to find Many families like this. Herodias had taken great offence at John's rebukes. For some odd reason, Christians keep telling me we shouldn't point out individual sins in our evangelism. John clearly didn't agree with them. It's part of Christian witness to highlight specific sins that are prominent in our particular cultural setting, as well as speaking about sin generally. The constant pestering of Herod by his wife eventually succeeded. John was thrown into prison. But this wasn't enough for Herodias. She wanted him dead. His mere existence was enough to haunt her thoughts. Like all the people of this world, she thought herself to be a good person. She knew she was a good person because her pride told her so. <laughs> and here was this vagrant, this nobody, this 
uncivilized lout from the desert, telling her she was sinning. He needed to be wiped off the face of the planet, and Herodias would do anything to accomplish that. She was even prepared to corrupt her own daughter to get her way. And when the girl came to her mum and asked what request she should make of Herod, there was no hesitation. I want the Baptist dead. No, 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 that's not good enough. I want him beheaded. Even better, I want his head on a plate. The fool of a man gave the order. The deed was done. The head was put on a plate and brought to Herod. Herod handed it over to his stepdaughter. And she then gave it to her mother. We can only imagine how elated Herodias was. She'd beaten her husband. She got revenge on John. And she did it in a way to make her victory all the greater. Such hatred. Such hatred. The public, of course, they don't like being told there's such a thing as sin. And they've committed crimes against God. They sometimes laugh. They sometimes scorn. Sometimes they even get aggressive. But by far the worst aggression comes when particular sins are highlighted, as in John's case. If a man's preaching on the street and he makes reference to the sin of abortion, for example, he'll likely face great hostility. It seems the more the preacher exposes people's cherished sins, the more he'll be hated. Now, if you have people indulging in certain notorious sins that deep down they suspect are wrong, the last thing they want is people reminding them of those suspicions. In order to bury their consciences, they need to persuade themselves what they're doing is right. They must also have society assuring them what they're doing is right. This is why sinful movements in our society today fight to silence any opposition to today's wicked lifestyle choices. They tell themselves they're doing good. The media tells them they're doing good. Corporations tell them they're doing good. And just when they think they've killed off this voice of conscience. Along comes a Christian and dares to tell them they're sinning. I've preached at various pride parades. I preached the gospel to them. And I've no problem with using that term, by the way, pride parade, because... That's what these are. It is pride being paraded. And pride is sinful. 
they may as well call it the London Sin March or the New York Perversion Rally. Now, there might be a small part of my message to those people to do with the specific sins they want to boast about. But they hate even the general preaching of the gospel, which is what is preached mostly. And you might be surprised by the level of hatred we see in them. We see them going red in the face with anger. We see them screaming in our faces. We see them shouting perverse things about Jesus, damaging our signs, trying to attack us, throwing cups of coffee, used condoms and many other things at us. And then there are the direct threats. Last time, one guy said, if there were no police around, he'd love to pour petrol on us all and burn us alive. <laughs> I have to be fair and say that's not the attitude of all of them. I've, I've heard a, a few say things like that, but I can say the general feeling among that movement is they'd rather we're all dead. They would rather we were all dead. Sinful men and women have cherished sins and woe to you if you expose them. There's not much to say about this young girl, Herodias' daughter. Like all of us, she came into this world with the potential to commit all manner of sin. Like all of us, she was fully deserving of God's wrath. If this girl heard any of John's preaching, it doesn't sound like she took any notice. I imagine she was well aware of the viral news about Jesus of Nazareth and his power and teaching, but she wasn't interested. If she had any opinion of these men at all, it will have been instilled in her by her manipulative and rather bitter mother. Her upbringing would have taught her little about right and wrong. As much as she was manipulated, she was still a sinner in the eyes of God. She was easily old enough to understand it was wrong to kill a man for no good reason. I'm sure her mother will have expressed her bitter hatred for John to her daughter on many occasions. So she knew full well her mother's request was based on pure hatred rather than some criminality in John. This girl was fully complicit. Without hesitance, she rushed back to her stepfather and made her request. At the judgment seat of Christ, she will be held partly responsible for the murder of John. This was one of God's children. John was an adopted son of God. He was an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ himself. God will not take that crime lightly.
following Jesus will always involve rejection by this world. And this rejection could be expressed even in your murder. Christians around the world are killed every day for their faith. You happen to be in a place where God has decreed you will not face that level of viciousness at this time. That's all. But remember, believer, that you stand in the same place as John. You too are the apple of God's eye. When people oppose you, they oppose God. When they slander you, they slander God. And if they kill you, it shows intent that if it were possible, they would kill God too. But vengeance is God's and he will repay. He will repay. And so it was. John's ministry was fully ended. His last moments were spent with his head on a block staring down at the dusty floor of the dungeon. From a man's point of view, an ignominious end. Yet we can declare his demise a great victory. His death was, after all, at a precise, precise time ordained by God. His death was of a manner decreed by God. His death marked the end of a life spent in service to God. And his demise, his decrease, marked the end of his grand introduction to the world of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He must needs have decreased so Christ would increase. If you go to see a stage show of some kind, say a famous guitarist or cellist, there's always a host. This is the person you see first. They lay out the event that's about to take place. They are, if you like, the herald of the one who is to perform. They fully understand they're not the star attraction. They're to make their introduction, then leave. John always knew he was there to simply introduce the Son of God. Although at first all eyes were on him, his role was to direct their gaze to another. And so it was, he pointed the people towards Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah. And his job then was to slip into the shadows out of view. Had he remained in the limelight, people may have continued to look to him as the great prophet. So he prepares to leave. I must decrease, he says. And then Christ will increase. In what way did Jesus increase? That is, how did this increase, this prominence, work out? I'd like to break down the story of Jesus into four points in order to explain his increase. Firstly, he increased through his ministry. Even just a few chapters into Mark's Gospel, we've seen Jesus display his power and preach 
with great authority. He showed the world he had power to manipulate diseases in a body. He had power to instruct demons where to go. He had power to defy gravity. He had power to change one chemical into another. He had power to command the weather to behave as he wished. And he had power to bring dead people back to life. But none of these was the most important aspect of his ministry. These were performed to give credibility to his message. He came to tell the world he was the Messiah. He was the one prophesied from ancient times. He was the one who was going to give his life in order to eternally save others. Luke chapter 4 and verse 43 says, And he, Jesus, said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. That's why I was sent. The communication of his message was the most important part of his ministry. And I wish the churches in the modern day would take note of that example. If we could describe a general trend in the bulk of the churches in the past few decades, it would be that singing and other activities have increased while preaching has decreased. It's a shame. Well, my second point, Jesus increased through his death. Like John, Jesus was murdered. Both killings were unjust. Both were crimes against God. But we believe in the sovereignty of God. And so we declare confidently that both of these deaths were victories. In Colossians 2 verse 14 it tells us Jesus was blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Which was contrary to us. And took it out of the way. Nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it what appeared commonly to be a shameful defeat was instead the greatest victory this world has ever seen he removed the burden of the condemning law of God from his people and killed it on the cross and the whole event was nothing less than a grand triumph over all his enemies. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible he volunteered to be arrested. He submitted himself to a corrupt judgment. He allowed himself to be battered. And even if legions of angels were waiting in the wings to move in on his command, he forsook all help and let those cruel men hang him on a tree to die. If we think of the incarnation of Jesus as the, the centre point of all human history, we could zoom in and more specifically identify the death of Christ as the most crucial. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, 
For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's strange, is it not, that something so negative should be at the very heart of a religion's doctrines. We declare to you, we tell the world, that this most central tenet of the Christian faith is our King and Saviour was brutally killed. Yes, there's more to the story, but we must always present to this world a message centred around Calvary. Churches may be ashamed of Calvary. They may choose to accentuate his heavenly glory, his healing ministry, his resurrection or his ascension at the expense of Calvary. Not so us. In accordance with the scriptures and as God gives us grace, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died. You may feel more comfortable believing Jesus didn't die properly. Men have devised sophisticated explanations to describe what happened to Jesus. Many will say his body only went into the ground and but the real him the real essence ascended to heaven there he would wait a few days until it was time to return to earth for the to take part in his grand resurrection and then shortly afterwards he would go back to heaven for the second time unfortunately none of that is in the bible and you'll be disappointed if you think i've crafted some Equally elaborate but more satisfactory explanation. I am going to stick with the plain statements in the scriptures. I'll only venture to say this somehow in a fashion way beyond my ability to comprehend. Jesus Christ, man and God, descended into the realm of the dead. That, that is... The one who ascended to heaven after his resurrection is the same person as he who descended into the grave. There was no division. That is death. Here's my fair point. Jesus increased through his resurrection. Let's remind ourselves of that joyful moment when the the tomb was laid, the tomb that he, he was laid in was found to be empty. If you have a look in Luke 24, verses 4 to 7, we read, And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, why see he the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. 
Jesus Christ, body and soul, went to the grave. But it wasn't possible the grave could hold him. The Jews, you know, commonly believed a body would start to decompose after four days. I know it's not entirely scientific, but it becomes significant uh, symbolically when we realise Jesus was lifted out of the grave before the fourth day. Jesus himself, speaking through the psalmist in Psalms 16, declares, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He didn't experience decomposition. This glorious resurrection broke the power of the grave. It allows us a glimpse into what our own resurrection will look like. By the resurrection, Jesus was fitted out with a new body, one that was suitable to inhabit a heavenly realm. And he promises that all who follow him will likewise get to live in this different but better form in the world to come. Here's my last point. Jesus increased through his ascension. Following his resurrection, Jesus spent some more time on earth. He allowed himself to be seen in his resurrected form by many hundreds of people, leaving a wealth of evidence for his resurrection. He comforted his disciples and promised them the soon arrival of a a different helper, the Holy Spirit. Then the time came to leave. He had his eternal resurrection body, The battle was over. Now it was time to escape the sin-polluted world and take his place as king in the heavens. Luke 24, verse 50, describes it like this. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And there he sits today, victorious, but not inactive. He's taken on the job of our defence lawyer. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He exists as A constant reminder to the Father that all his children are blameless and he will never leave his post. Here then is the pinnacle of the increase of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ to have the preeminence today, all others must step out of the limelight. Gospel preachers who are serious about magnifying the name of Jesus Christ are happy to do this. My greatest desire as a preacher is that God would so use my efforts, not that I might earn a reputation, but people would think more highly of Jesus Christ. 
If I've ever said anything that has caused you to esteem him better, with no thought of the person who preached it, I count that a success. I want to deliver a message, hopefully a message from heaven, then step aside so you see none but Jesus only. Our increase is not in preeminence like Jesus's, but is found in a proper view of God and ourselves. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men, even as we do toward you. Amen.